This is Chris Brooks. Thank you for listening to this edition of Equip. Be sure and subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. For more information, visit our website, equipradio.org. Enjoy the following pre-recorded encore presentation of Equipped with Chris Brooks. Well, hey there, folks. Welcome to another exciting edition of Equipped with Chris Brooks. I am so glad you've tuned in. Why don't you strap on your seatbelt? We're going to navigate through the contours of culture, as always, with the lens of the biblical worldview on. But before we do that, let me remind you, this is the day that the Lord has made. He has given it as a gift so that you and I might rejoice and be glad in it. So let's do just that. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. And every day this year, you've been reminded of that when you tune in to equip. Listen, folks, I know there's a lot going on in our culture, a lot going on in our country to disrupt our heart and rob us of our peace. But let me be one who reminds you that Jesus is in control, that God is sovereign, that Psalms 2 is still true, that God looks at the rulers of the nations. He sits, he laughs. He is ultimately in control and his plan for redemption will be accomplished. There is one King of kings and Lord of lords, and his government will have no end. And so please be at peace as we pray for our country. Please be at peace as we pray for this generation. And let's seize moments like we're living in right now to be faithful witnesses of the eternal promises of God. Ultimately, our hope is not in economics. Our hope is not in geopolitical affairs. Our hope is not in the uh, direction and management skills of humanity. Our hope is in our Savior and our great God. So be encouraged today. And if ever there was a season we should be encouraged, it is Christmas time. Today I want to talk about the beauty and the danger of Christmas. Now, we all love the Christmas story. We love the nativity. We love the Messiah born as a baby, meek and mild, the manger, the wise men, the shepherds. As a matter of fact, my wife blessed me yesterday. I came home and she had purchased a new nativity set. She knows how much I love nativities. And so she purchased a new nativity set for our front table as you walk into our home. And as I was uh, setting it up, her and I were setting up the nativity set. My young son, Judah, and my daughter, Sophia, come running up and uh, wanted to touch all the pieces. And we're trying to protect them from being broken. Uh, but it gave us opportunity to share with them what each piece represented, to share with them the story of the nativity, the story of the first Christmas, the fulfillment of the promise of the coming of the Messiah into the world. But yet there is a risk we have, and that is to simply sentimentalize the story of Christmas, to make it something that's sentimental, so much so that we go simply from memory or from the stories that we've heard in Sunday school or from even worse, the way it's depicted in Hollywood. Hollywood, maybe movies or TV uh, shows, and praise God for all of those things, but never, never, never get too far from the text. May our hearts ever be anchored in the Word of God. Now, with that being said, two of the Gospels record for us the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Today, we're going to look at those, and we're going to ask ourselves, what can we learn from the beauty and the diversity of these two accounts? 
We also want to make sure that we are prepared to give an answer for the skeptic, for the critic who questions why in the world we would even celebrate the coming of the Messiah into the world. Is it true historically? Is it true factually? We'll try to equip you so that you can be a more faithful witness during this Christmas season. As always, I invite some uh, pretty smart people to join me in. Dr. Daryl Bach, one of my favorite biblical scholars, is with me today. He's the executive director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He's also an author of over 40 books, including uh, well-regarded commentaries on Luke and Acts and studies on the historical Jesus. Uh, His work in cultural engagement is evident as he hosts the Seminary's Table podcast. If you haven't heard it, check it out and subscribe. He was president of the Evangelical Theological Society from 2000-2001. He is also consulting editor for Christianity Today and serves on the board of Wheaton College and Chosen People Ministries. More importantly, for today, he's my guest. Dr. Bach, how are you? Hey, Chris. I'm doing great. Merry Christmas. It is good to talk to you, and uh, I'm so excited. As a new dad, I get a chance to uh, teach another child about the story of Christmas. It's pretty exciting. I want you to talk a little bit. What was Christmas like in the Bach household growing up? Well, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so we just had probably a traditional Christmas with a tree and presents, and and that was about it. And then, you know, I came to the Lord and got married, and um, we um, gathered together on my wife's side of the family numerous times. We would read through the Christmas story, and then when we would hit a phrase that would remind us of a hymn, we'd all break out and sing that hymn until we worked our way through the story. Now, many uh, may not know, and I mentioned in your bio, your relationship with Chosen People Ministries, but about your your Jewish background. So talk a little bit about how your Jewishness, even as a believer and follower of Christ, affects the way you see Christmas. Well, I mean, it... it it's important because there's a lot of obviously Jewish background and Jewish concerns in the story. In fact, people who read the infancy narrative uh, directly are almost shocked by how Jewish it is in contrast to expecting some Christian things to be there. But of course, in the lead in, people don't quite have a handle yet on what God is doing other than he sent a savior. So, um, so all the expectations are expressed in very Jewish terms, promises and commitments made to the patriarchs are highlighted because part of what's being articulated is even though what is happening is new, it's part of a long established plan in the mind of God. I'm so glad you brought that up because if we're going to adopt the biblical worldview, the biblical narrative, then we know the story of Christmas precedes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They It has its roots in the Old Testament, the prophets in particular. Now, when you've written over 40 books like yourself, it's easy to forget one or two. So let me remind you about the resource that we're featuring today. It was a book you wrote a few years back, Jesus the Messiah, Tracing the Promises, Expectations, and Coming of Israel's King. Talk about why you wrote that book and what our listeners can find when they get a copy of Jesus the Messiah. Well, we're we're trying to show the relationship between uh, what the New Testament says about Jesus, what the Old Testament says about Jesus, and even what the Jewish expectations were about the Messiah as he showed up. 
So um, so it kind of covers the whole shooting match. I wrote it with two other uh, colleagues, one an Old Testament expert, the other an expert in kind of the, what we often call the intertestamental period or the Second Temple Jewish period, so that we were able to kind of tell the whole story about how the really the Hebrew Scripture anticipates and describes much of what goes on in the New Testament. Even though it's in this time of the year that so many in Western culture have chosen to celebrate the uh, birth of the Messiah, uh, the truth is is that this is something we should celebrate, reflect, and and live for every day of our lives. We should be witnesses of the birth of the Messiah and ultimately connecting that birth to the cross and to the resurrection every day of our lives. So let me encourage you to get a copy of Jesus the Messiah, not just as a Christmas gift, but as a way of shaping and rooting your theology and your worldview deeply in the heart of uh, Scripture and God's redemptive plan. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the birth of Jesus. I mentioned that the Gospels contain the story of the birth of Jesus in both uh, beautiful and diverse ways. So let's talk about that. One of the words that's used to describe this phenomenon is called synoptic. What does it mean, and I'm getting a little bit technical, but what does it mean when we say synoptic Gospels? We're talking about the Gospels that overlap in their content. Synoptic actually is two Greek words. Soon, which means together, and optic, which means see. So see together. You're able to put those Gospels side by side and see that they're telling fundamentally the same story. In contrast, the Gospel of John has around, and this is an estimate, about 88% material that's unique to that Gospel. So it doesn't overlap with the content of Jesus' ministry the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they're looking over fundamentally fundamentally the same story as they present it, even though they're doing it from slightly different angles on some occasions. So so in particular today, I want us to focus in on Matthew and, uh, and Luke. However, we're going to open up the phone lines, and if there's questions beyond that, we can take them. But I want uh, us as much as possible to focus our attention on Matthew and Luke. All right, so as we look at Matthew and Luke, I want you to share just a little bit about what is the major difference between the two, because as you read them, you see there are differences, even though they're talking about the same historical moment. Well, there are, there are lots of pieces to this, but let me just I'll highlight two to start off with, and then we can go from there. The first is the tone of the two presentations is very distinct. In Luke, Luke is full of joy. It's uh, driven by the three three of the hymns that are part of the infancy story and, and the period just beyond. Uh, there's not a dark cloud anywhere in the Lucan account until you get to Simeon's warning to Mary that, you know, that she's, he's going to be like a sword cutting through mm. her soul. Uh, in contrast to that, Matthew's dark and has conflict from the very beginning. Um, the Magi come to Herod to find out where the baby's going to be born. There are infants that are slaughtered in Bethlehem as Herod tries to eliminate this child that has been born. And so uh, it, it's tragic and, it, and it's a harder picture. So that's tone. The second core difference is um, that Matthew tells the story pretty much from the perspective of Joseph. 
whereas Luke is telling the story pretty much from the perspective of Mary. So that Joseph has a dream about his pregnant wife, of course, a pregnancy he's not responsible for in Matthew. And Mary gets the announcement about the fact that she's going to bear a child in Luke. So one, you know, so one focus exists in Matthew. The other focus uh, exists in Luke. I said two, but I'll add a bonus. A third one is the way the Old Testament is, no, is noted. In Matthew, the Old Testament is noted by saying, and this was done in order that it might be fulfilled as a kind of narrative comment. In Luke, all the Old Testament allusions are wrapped up in the language of the participants. So mm. you don't get this note from the author saying, hey, by the way, I'm citing the Old Testament here. You just get a lot of language that keeps drawing you back into the Hebrew Scripture story. So one of the cautions, and I'm grateful for those highlights that you just gave us, but one of the cautions that you – uh, give us in, in your treatment of this, Dr. Bach, is that we should be careful not to simply try to combine the accounts. What do you mean by that? Well, my point here is is that there are actually two warnings. One is we got to be careful about how about how we combine the accounts. I would say it that way. And then secondly, we don't want to let all the apologetic work that has to be done today because of modern skepticism get in the way of hearing the actual message of what these mm. two accounts are telling us each on their own terms because they're each doing something slightly different. And 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 so sometimes we miss the biblical message of what the texts are saying because we're busy defending uh, the events that the texts are presenting. And uh, I, I think it's very, very important to be able to do both um, because the the message is actually not just in the event, but what's said about the event from each of these Gospels. Yeah, I love that. And I'm grateful for you highlighting how we should read this carefully. You know, one of the ways that I look at the Gospels is almost like a feature film. And if you would imagine you being on set of the feature film, there'd be multiple camera angles, right? And each one picking up various angles of the same scene. And when we're able to look at those angles, it gives us a richer, more full perspective on what's going on. Hopefully we can do that today. But first we have to take a break. And as we get ready to go to our first break today, let me remind you that we get one more opportunity to encourage you to help us to finish the year strong today. And I love it. As we come to the end of the year, I look back and say, Praise God for all of the lives that were impacted and changed. What's beautiful about this program is each and every day we're here for people, many of which who have questions about Christ and about faith in God and about how Jesus makes a difference. And every day we're here to answer those questions and to lead them in their next steps in their journey with Jesus. You're a part of that through your generosity. So can I ask you to prayerfully consider uh, investing in this ministry, a year-end tax-deductible gift. You can do so by dialing 888-644-4144. Do it now, 888-644-4144. Or if it's easier, equipradio.org. We'll be right back with more of Equip right after this. As the year comes to a close here at Equip, we've seen so many lives change through our daily communication of the gospel. 
Help us to expand our reach by giving a year-end gift. Now, I know that some of you can afford to give gifts of $100 or $500 or even $1,000, and we thank you for your partnership. Really, any amount will help us in our mission to promote the gospel. Together, we can reach the world. Make a difference with a year-end gift today by calling 888-644-4144 or go to equipradio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. We're taking your calls at 877-LIVE-675. That's 877-548-3675. Maybe you have questions about the biblical account of the birth of Jesus. Questions that have arisen from your study or your reading of Matthew or Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. I would love to take your questions. And so with my guest, Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. While we're discussing uh, how we can better understand the biblical account of Jesus's birth, I also want to recommend a book by Dr. Bach, Jesus the Messiah. It traces the promises, the expectations, and coming of Israel's King Kriegel Publisher. You can find out more by going to our website, equipradio.org. Dr. Bob, before we get back to the specifics about the account of Jesus' birth in uh, Matthew and Luke, I want to just pause for just a moment to uh, give you an opportunity to share a few words about how you as a scholar deal with or advise uh, your students to deal with apparent discrepancies in the text. And that, that's just broadly in, in the biblical text, in the biblical corpus, how do you deal with apparent discrepancies? Uh, the key thing is to, to work with each text in context and to realize that part of what produces a discrepancy in some cases are the choices that an author is making about what to discuss and what not to discuss, what they are concerned about presenting, and and really what they have chosen not to talk about. It's it's a little bit like if I asked you and your wife about your engagement, uh, how you got engaged, she would be concerned about telling certain things about that story, some of which you've probably forgotten, mm-hmm. and vice versa. <laughs> and so... Um, So that's the first thing is to realize that you're dealing with angles and that everyone's being selective in what it is that they're presenting. And then the second thing is, and this is this will sound strange, but I, when we talk details, I think this will be clearer, is to be careful to realize that you're filling in gaps in many cases. And so how that might work is not always clear um, because neither author is quite asking, may not be asking the exact question that you're raising. It's a little bit like on instant replay, you know, in NFL football games, when they're trying to figure out, did the receiver get two feet inbounds or not? Certain angles are not going to show that, and other angles will. And so it just has to do with the direction or the angle at which things are being looked at as to whether that question is even a concern to be pursued or not. And so sometimes we ask questions, particularly in filling in gaps in narrative, that um, that the text itself is not concerned about and is not attempting to ask. In fact, in some cases, the writers aren't aware of the question because each of them has written their story from their own angle and direction and may not be aware of what someone else said about that event. All of that is to say that that when you deal with discrepancies, you've got to be very patient with the process because, again, you may be asking a question that the text may not answer. 
And then in other cases where you know you're dealing with the same thing, it may be that the angle of concern is what is producing the difference that you see. A couple of thoughts on what you just said. First off, I love everything you just said. First off, thank you for using the football analogy. It helps us <laughs> to make sure we remain practical and relevant here on Equip as we deal with uh, important theological topics. Secondly, and I want, on a more serious note, what I love about your response is that it's all wrapped up in one word, and that is context. It's important right. for us to understand the context of what we're reading when we're reading any passage of Scripture. It's important for us to understand that though the Bible is timeless, it's also timely. It was written to a particular group of people by a particular author at a particular time, and we need to be sensitive to that. We need to make sure that we um, uh, utilize the Bible helps that are available to us by men like Dr. Bach and by other well-trained biblical scholars. So I'm grateful for that as well. We also need to understand, Dr. Bach, and you have alluded to this, that no particular author of Scripture is exhaustive to the extent that they're answering every question. But what Scripture does provide for us is sufficient information and account for us to have faith towards God. Can you just say a word on that? Well, yeah. I mean, your point is very well taken. You are uh, communicating, uh, the the Scripture writers are communicating what they think we need in order to appreciate the story, and in some cases, appreciate the story from the angle in which they're telling it. So, for example, just to go back to Matthew and Luke, Matthew is very interested in how the emerging Christian movement relates to the Judaism that it's coming out of and what the history of that conflict is and how to see that conflict. Luke, who's writing more with a Gentile audience in mind, is much less concerned uh, with that particular question. Um, he He's not interested in the Jewish background other than how it helps with how the mission has gone out to Gentiles. So you'll see certain issues covered in Matthew that are not covered in Luke, and 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 that's intentional because of the the different audiences that they're addressing and the different concerns those audiences have about the way to see the Jesus story. I love it. So great, so rich. All right, let's go to the phone lines. We're also going to get back to Dr. Bach's uh, analysis of the Lukean account and Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. But uh, next, I want to go to Crystal Lake. And in Crystal Lake, Illinois, we have Tom who's listening to us. Hey, Tom, Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Thanks for listening to Equip. What's your question for Dr. Bach? Merry Christmas to you, too, also. Thank you very much for taking my call. My question is, is that um, I had uh, time to spend with my sister who is uh was a, is a Jehovah Witness, and mm-hmm. I was trying to talk to her about Christ and or talk to her about her beliefs. And the one thing she brought up that she's saying is that Christians are just all out to lunch because they believe that Christ was born in, in December, and they celebrate his birthday in December, and in actuality, the fact is, is that he was born in October, and we're just following pagan rituals and uh, things, so it's like... Sure. Uh, She's saying is that Christians say that Jehovah Witnesses are a cult. She goes, I really think that Christians are a cult. Sure, sure. What, what do you ha- help me with an, a- uh, an answer? 
Dr. Bob, well, before you respond, is, uh, real quick. Uh, uh, you... First of all, I'm glad that you talked about us being out to lunch because it's about lunchtime, so it's, uh, it's a good <laughs> reminder. Uh, the, the, the second thing to say is, is we actually don't know exactly when Jesus was born um, in terms of the time of the year. Uh, we celebrate Christmas on the, on the 25th of December because it was uh, a celebration that was put in place of a pagan celebration about the uh, winter equinox, about the change from from winter towards spring, and so uh, and this was a, a holiday called Saturnalia, and so because we don't know exactly what day Jesus was born on uh, in, during the year, um, the Christians, uh, you know, they knew they had a birth, so they knew he was born on a day of the year, and this is when they've chosen to celebrate it. Um, there's an alternative alternative tradition, interestingly enough, in the Eastern Church that celebrates it not on December 25th, but on January 6th for different reasons, the details of which I actually don't know. But anyway, um, so so the date of the celebration of Christmas is is part of a church tradition. Having said that, None of that has anything to do with the question of who Jesus is, what his ministry was about, etc. Because what we celebrate on Christmas, of course, is the fact that God took on flesh, that he became incarnated, that that uh, that God stepped down out of heaven and and took on human flesh in order to be uh, present with us, to show his care for us, etc. That is the core of the Christian story. That has nothing to do with the date of Christmas. So grateful for uh, Tom's call. Tom, I think the, the best part of your call is that you're in the conversation with your sister. I want to encourage you to stay in that conversation. Uh, the questions that she's bringing up are not new questions, important ones, though. And I think Dr. Bach answered it well. Let's understand that what we as Christians are celebrating is the fact that the Messiah was born. Uh, not so much trying to consummate dates. That's not the focus of the, uh, the or the purpose behind our celebration of the first Christmas of the nativity. It is us saying that something drastically happened when Christ came into the world. As a matter of fact, let me just say, it's the only event in human history that I believe can rightfully be said changes everything. This changed everything. And that's why it's most important. Let, let Christ be the focus and everything else be a footnote. We're going to take just a short break. When we come back, we're going to get more wisdom from Dr. Daryl Bach on how to properly understand the accounts of Matthew and Luke and the birth of Jesus in the Gospels. Don't change that dial. The best is yet to come. Next up on Equip. Um. You're listening to a pre-recorded encore presentation of Equipped with Chris Brooks. Welcome back to Equipped with Chris Brooks. Hope you are enjoying this time of the year for all of you who, like me, might be a procrastinator in gift buying. It's not too late. And thank God for gift cards. With that being said, we're having a great conversation with Dr. Daryl Bach concerning the biblical account of the birth of Jesus. Dr. Bach is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Bach, again, thank God for gift cards. It has saved many lives, and uh, it can save someone's life today. 
Uh, but on a serious note, thank you for taking time out to study and research the things that we're discussing. Uh, Dr. Bach, how do you deal with chronological uh, differences and difference in sequence of events when you're looking at Matthew and Luke's account? Well, again, you have to wrestle with the um, with the way in which the two contexts operate and in some degree are separated from each other because they're telling different storylines. So one of the one of the questions that people have, well, there are a variety of things, actually, that people have questions about. But one of the more interesting questions is, what is the sequence between the birth and the journey to Egypt? Because, mm-hmm. of course, you have the birth in both accounts, but you only have the journey to Egypt in Matthew. And then, of course, you only have the discussion of Jesus' parents taking Jesus to the temple for the consecration of the firstborn in Luke. So, which which requires a certain passage of a certain number of days, which most people don't realize is, is that um, Jesus was in the Bethlehem Jerusalem region, you know, at his birth, for a significant period of time in order one to be circumcised, but then secondly to have this ritual of the dedication of the firstborn, which took. Um, several weeks before one would get that done. So apparently there was the birth. We stayed in Jerusalem for a while. We dedicated the firstborn. I would see the journey to Jerusalem, uh, sorry, journey to Egypt ha- out of Jerusalem happening right after that. And then, of course, they went to Egypt. Uh, Matthew leaves the impression they were planning to come back to the Jerusalem area uh, after that, but that a dream um urged Joseph to take his wife and child to Galilee afterwards, even though they had come down from Galilee, according to Luke. So uh, with the move to have the birth and to participate in the census, et cetera, sounds like the family had been planning to, in effect, move south, but they ended up going back to their original home as a result of everything. And so that's that's the likely sequence of how to weave together, if I can say it that way, um, Luke and Matthew in terms of the story. Now, there's one other detail that's important, and that is you mentioned the crash earlier, and every crash that I've ever seen has um, the shepherds and the magi together worshiping yes. Jesus, and it, depending on how elaborate the crash is, maybe even a star sitting over where Jesus was born. <laughs> but in fact, what is likely to have happened is, is that the shepherds visited Jesus on the night of the birth, but the Magi probably came later. And uh, the reason we suspect this is because, one, the star guides them to um, Israel from a really uh, a region like Iran or Iraq, because these are astrologers, the Magi are, um, to find out where the child is born. They stop in Jerusalem to figure that out and to ask Herod and his crew what's going on. They find out it's in Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem to visit the child, and then they leave, and Herod determines that that he's been tricked, that they haven't come back to him to tell him where the child was born because, of course, he said he wanted to divorce the child. He actually wanted to kill the child. So a dream prevents the Magi from going back. Herod then decides he's going to try and eliminate this child by killing all the babies in Bethlehem. Uh, and Bethlehem's a small area, so this is not many babies, but it's still a, a massacre. And he wants every child two years and under. 
So this is the window into which the Magi fall for their visit. So I tease people that if you want a biblically accurate crash, you got to buy two of them, okay? And one of them has the shepherd's present, and the other has the magi present. <laughs> or you can just save money by one and explain it. Leave a note that's attached. A, well, that's true. I mean, you know, that, that took, what, people, five minutes? It probably cost you a few bucks. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Folks, if you have questions that you'd like to ask Dr. Black, please uh, do so. Call right now, 877-LIVE-675. This is only important because we're talking about the birth of the Messiah who saves the world. And so this, my friends, are what we are called to bear witness of. We are called to be his witnesses. And how can we be a witness of the gospel events if we don't first understand the historical record? And so maybe you have questions from the reading of Matthew and Luke that you like to ask. And to have Dr. Bach on with me is a gift, and I want to share that gift with you. The phone number 877-548-548. 3675. I'm going to bring up a name, and I want you to respond to this, Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman is someone who's been critical uh, of uh, the record of Scripture, and he says this about the different angles as we talk about that. says, the discrepancies are important for historical reasons. He says, if two accounts are at odds with one another concerning the birth of Jesus, they cannot both be historically accurate. Either one of them is accurate and the other is not, or they're both not accurate. Obviously, everything that you've said so far has dismantled that argument, but I do want you to respond. Well, what you get from someone who's reading the account skeptical is this formula, which is difference equals contradiction. But that's not true. Uh, difference can simply equal difference for the very reasons that I articulated earlier. In other words, that one writer is concerned with certain issues and another writer is concerned with another set of issues. And they may touch on looking at the same thing, but they may not be asking or pursuing the same question. And they may have a uh, slightly different emphasis as a result. Um, It's hard for me to know what specific contradictions between the two accounts he's necessarily raising other than perhaps the issue of the locale of the family uh, between Galilee in the north, the region in the north where Nazareth was, and Bethlehem in the south. Matthew pretty much tells the story in such a way that Bethlehem is the focus of of the location for Matthew, whereas Luke tells the story in such a way that we journey down from Nazareth to Bethlehem and then we end up at the, you know by the time we're back in the end of the infancy material with Jesus family visit to the temple at the end of chapter 2 of Luke um, we're back in Galilee coming back down to Jerusalem and some people say well see that's a contradiction in one account the home is is Bethlehem and in the other account the home is Nazareth those both can't be true But actually, that one's not so hard. What Luke is telling us, because he's giving us more detail about how we get to Bethlehem, is we started out in Nazareth, went down to Bethlehem for a census recording and for the birth, and then eventually worked our way back uh, to uh, Nazareth uh, because of this dream that Matthew uh, tells us. And Matthew's only interested in in the birth. He's not interested in the census. 
Luke is interested in the census because he's concerned about how what is happening with Jesus relates to the larger Gentile world. Sure. And the census is something the Gentile world has triggered that brought the move. Yes. And so, so these are different details out of different concerns. Difference does not equal contradiction. Difference is simply difference. Let's go to the phone lines. Listening in Grand Rapids, Michigan, city I love, is Kristen. Hey, Kristen, thank you so much for listening to Equip. What's your question for Dr. Bach? Thank you. I have been reading uh, recently, uh, there's been some writings from some theologians, some historians in that region of that country that talk about the traditional manger uh, stable scene that we use and that it was more likely because of the times and how families were set up back then, that it was actually a room called the manger that's kind of like on the back of a house, um, that the animals sure. weren't like actually in there. And so I'm just kind of curious because that's really new to me. That's yeah, right. it's, uh, the manger actually is a is an animal feeding trough. I mean, that's actually what it was. So you're either dealing with um, a connection to a house like you've just described, which is quite possible, or you're dealing with a with a with a cave area, if I can say it, where animals would be protected and kept. Um, so it's one of those two scenarios that we're dealing with. And again, here's a here's an issue where. Um, in some cases, we don't have enough detail to know what the exact answer is. You know, I always, I always get a kick out of um, movies about uh, about infancy material or movies about any historical scene, for that matter, because the director's got to figure out how in the world do I picture this. He's got to answer every single solitary question about the location of events some of which the historical texts that we raise don't give us any detail on other than we're in this city or we're in this kind of a setting. And so um, this is one of those details where if I were a movie director, I'd have to figure out exactly how I wanted to portray this, and I might or might not be uh, on target depending on what the portrayal is. But what we know is the manger is a feeding trough, and this obviously was a very humble beginning. In fact, let me make a point that I like to make when I talk about the infancy material, which is you know, we get occupied with these kinds of questions of details about what was this like and what was going on here. Sure. But there actually is a message that's entailed in that. And the message that's entailed in this particular start is this is the king of the universe, in effect, coming to earth and becoming incarnated. He didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He didn't come born in a castle. He didn't yes. come born in a major capital city. He's tucked away on the edge of the Roman Empire among a Jewish community that is surrounded by Roman power, and that birth of that powerful child ends up being laid in a manger. I love it. You know, that Dr. Bach, let, let, let me just say this. I'm, I'm so grateful you bring this up because I love apologetics. And uh, apologetics is the art and science of being able to command and defend the Christian faith. And to that extent, there are the, all of these details are important, very much so. Uh, but to my sister Kristen's point, um, the, the question of the location of the manger and the animals, that is a um, very interesting question. It is one worth exploring as long and in as much as we hear what Dr. Bach is saying, that we don't miss the major point. And the major point is that the king of the universe was born in a manger. Don't let that 
be missed as we uh, research other details that are fascinating and important. Every detail mentioned in Scripture is important. It is not unimportant. But let's make sure we understand the major message that each of those details are pointing to, the wisdom of our God to redeem humanity in a way that no one fully understood but yet in a way that proves his wisdom and his sovereignty. Folks, we got to take another to all of us, no matter how rich or poor we, we are. That's a beautiful thing. And the promise, you know, I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 11 in particular, when uh, the, the Messiah is, is, is talked about there, those first uh, seven verses or so. And man, what a promise it is to those who were experiencing injustice, brokenness, those who have been uh, victims of war and all of the brokenness and fallenness of life. And yet the promise that in the midst of darkness, there was going to come a light and a Messiah who would rule, not like previous rulers, but he would rule with the spirit of God. And I love that. Listen, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to uh, help to uh, take more of your calls. Uh, But also we want to encourage you as we approach the end of the year that you would help to add fuel to the engine that is equipped by making a generous year-end tax-deductible donation to equip. Your generosity and God's grace allows us to be here every day to equip Christians to more effectively live, share, and defend their faith. If you want to support, dial the number 888-644-4144. That's 888-644-4144. Or if it's easier, equipradio.org. Christmas is almost here, and to help you make the most of this season, I'd like to sing you a book called Is Christmas Unbelievable? Author and apologist Rebecca McLaughlin helps us to go beyond the familiar story of the nativity to see the life-changing truth and genuine evidence of our Savior's birth. A copy can be yours when you give a gift of any amount to equip. Just call 888-644-4144 or visit online at equipradio.org. Welcome back to Equip with Chris Brooks. Hey, I want you to save the day for a very exciting event that's coming up January 12th. That's the next Equipper Zoom webinar. Save the day. You don't want to miss the next Equipper Zoom webinar. Now, we do these quarterly as a way of maintaining intimate connection with our monthly partners. And if you're an Equipper, this one is going to be a must-attend webinar. We're going to talk about Jesus, anxiety, and depression. Why does God allow mental health issues, and how do I live out my faith if this is a part of my reality? Uh, One of the growing topics of our day is mental health. So many are experiencing life with anxiety and depression. How do we live out the Christian faith in light of these realities. I'm going to talk about Jesus, anxiety, and depression on our next Zoom webinar. All you have to do is be a monthly partner, save the date, and uh, your Equipper Encouragement email will send you registration details. And if you're not a monthly partner, don't fret. It is easy to become one. All you have to do is dial the number 888-644-4144. I'll give it again, 888 888- 644-4144. Jesus, anxiety, and depression. Don't miss 
this uh, must attend Zoom webinar. We want to invite all of our monthly partners. Dr. Daryl Bach is my guest today. He's the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas. Great place to get a good education. Why don't we go to Linda, who's listening in uh, Westfield, Indiana. Hey, Linda, thank you so much for listening to Equip. What's your question for Dr. Bach? I have heard a few speakers on Moody Radio refer to Mary as a 14- or 15-year-old young woman. Where does that come from in the Bible? This comes from the standard age that a girl gets engaged in in the first century. You know, I tell people, you're dealing with a 7th or 8th grader here. And the fact that this girl is so young and yet understands the promise of God and the hope of God so beautifully as depicted in the hymns that we have in Luke um, shows a young girl who who knew the promise of God and knew the scriptures. So yeah, you've heard that and it probably sounds shocking, but you also need to remember that people on average lived only till the age of 40. If you survived to the age of five, you still were more likely to live only until the age of 40, which means people are going on Medicare at 32. So um, so it's just a shorter lifespan. It's a more compact way to live. And so girls tended to get married as soon as they could bear children, which would be in the 12 to 14-year-old range. And boys would get married a little later on in their late teens um, when they were ready to, you know, handle the responsibilities uh, for a family. I appreciate the question, Linda. Hopefully that helps you. Obviously, there's a lot to be said about um, Isaiah 7 and 14, the uh, the prophecy of the virgin birth when we're considering Mary. But you talk about her singing throughout. What do those songs tell you? Well, those songs tell me, um, you know, that, that she lived and everything about this is actually one of the other beauties of the story we rarely talk about. Everything about Luke's account is telling us that Jesus' birth was surrounded by people who were committed, piously committed, to being faithful to God. So whether you think about Zechariah or Elizabeth, who were said to be without fault in reference to the law, or you think about Joseph and Mary, particularly Mary, who's able to sing these hymns in the language of the Psalms, basically, uh, as well as some passages in 1 Samuel, Um, uh, the fact that they go to the temple in accordance with the law to dedicate Jesus as the firstborn and to go through the rituals of cleansing that are associated with birth, uh, being very Jewish. These are very Jewish, pious people. So, you know, Jesus had the reputation by some of being a rebel, but what the infancy material is telling us is, no, he comes, he comes right out of the heart of Jewish piety. That's the background, and that's the background of his family. You know, I wish we had more time. We don't, unfortunately, but I, I, I just want to highlight the fact that uh, this was tremendously risky for them to believe. For, for Mary, it was a risky moment. It was risky for Joseph to believe this testimony, but they did because they had witness from heaven and because they trusted God. Well, connecting that to our day, these are still risky events for us to believe. You won't be celebrated by those who reject any sense of, of God in our culture, but yet 
It is by accepting these things, the account of Scripture, that true faith in Christ is demonstrated. And it's by accepting and sharing these things that the gospel spreads. Today, I pray that we don't miss the big picture. And the big picture is that Christ has called us to not just know these events, but to know them enough to believe them and to believe them enough to share them. And that's the heart of this, Dr. Bach. So grateful for you, my friend. No, oh, my pleasure, and uh, it's been great to, to visit with you. You know, one of the interesting things, I mentioned Hollywood earlier. One of the scenes that I can imagine is when Joseph and Mary each had to tell their parents what was going wow. on. That's that would have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> well, so much so much to explore. Thank you, Dr. Daryl Bach. For the rest of you, thank you for listening. Can't wait till we're together again next time. Until then, remember, Equip with Chris Brooks is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.